Hello, and welcome to Wooden Teeth, a podcast about health, politics, and policy. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today on the pod, we're going to share some recommendations for your summer reading list. First, I'm going to chat with my colleagues, Emma Hennessy and Chelsea Stallings, about the books we have all either read recently or have on our respective reading lists. And these both fall within and outside the scope of this podcast. We're going to have some fun. We're going to be nerdy. It's going to be great. Then we're going to present edited down versions of three of the best author interviews we've done so far, from Marion Nessel and her new book, Unsavory Truth, to Edgar Villanueva and Decolonizing Wealth, and finally to Leslie Crutchfield and her book, Why Some Social Movements Succeed and Others Don't. Okay, so before I get to this conversation with Emma and Chelsea, I also want to plug myself. There is a journal called the Stanford Social Innovation Review, and I have an article in this journal called Political Power as a Tool to Improve the Health of Americans. It's all about the urgent necessity to create political power for public health and describes how we do that at Healthier Colorado. You can check it out using the Google or um, I link to it on my Twitter feed. My Twitter handle is at this JW. All right, without further ado, let's get to my conversation about summer reading with Emma and Chelsea. So let's talk about what we're reading this summer. Uh, first, do you guys really read in your spare time or are you just like, you know, inventing some things you'd like to read for the purpose of this conversation? I really read in my personal time. Okay, mm-hmm. good, good. And I do too. Um, I was an English major, so for a while oh. I was really focused on fiction. And recently, though, I've just been really drawn to nonfiction because I think I've been watching so much Game of Thrones <laughs> that I feel obliged to read something that's actually real. Yeah. Um, so I've kind of shifted in my reading, but I do read too. I, I ask not in an accusatory f- fashion, but rather in a um, self-implicating fashion because I've I went for a long time without reading much at all and I've really gotten back to it um, kind of recently so I I'm glad I have I feel somewhat guilty of, of the lost years of not consuming as many books as I should so uh, hopefully people enjoy the ideas that we give them for stuff they can read this summer uh, let's start with you Emma the English major uh, what do you have on tap Okay, so as I said, they're all nonfiction, so it's very different than what I think a lot of people usually read in their 20s, but I promise they're actually way more interesting than they sound. Um, The first one is Boomtown by Sam Anderson. Um, It's a book that's essentially just about the history of Oklahoma City, which I know doesn't sound super riveting, but it's more than just... Is Russell Westbrook involved? He plays for the Oklahoma City. Yeah, maybe. Uh, Never mind. Go go ahead. (laughs) Um, It's more about how the culture and just the history of how it was founded has led to its entire historical trajectory from the Wild West out until the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, I've had it recommended to me by a lot of people because I've always been interested in how a place is shaped by the people who live there and vice versa. And everyone has told me it's one of the most comprehensive looks at a city, and it makes Oklahoma City kind of one of the more interesting topics you can think of, even though it might not seem like that initially. You're selling me on Oklahoma City as a read, not necessarily as a live. <laughs> but yeah, I'm interested. Okay, what else you got? Oh, all mine? Okay, um, the next one is, this is a really popular one, but I have just started it, and it is just as good as it may have seen because of how many bookshelves it's been seen on. It's Sapiens by Yuval Hara. Um, It's an entire history of 
humans and just the human species. But more importantly, and as something that kind of directly relates to wooden teeth, it's about breaking down preconceived notions of history and myths about our history of the species. Um, and one that I thought, I just started a couple weeks ago, and one particularly that I, and one that I particularly found was interesting um, is the section about how once the agricultural revolution started, people have always been taught in school that is one of the biggest moments for humans and one of the most important things in kind of setting off our trajectory into becoming an industrialized society. Um, but the author is argues in this book that humans were actually a lot happier, they're a lot healthier and a lot more successful when they're hunter-gatherers. He talks about how when we were hunter-gatherers, we would gather food for about two to three hours a day, and then once the industrial, once the agricultural revolution started, humans then began working for 12 hours a day, their meals became a lot less diversified, famine happened. Um, we daylight were, savings. Daylight savings. Uh, daylight savings is sucks. Yes. The worst. And the rich became a lot richer and the poor became a lot poorer. And he argued we were a lot more happier and we were all equal out there in the woods gathering Overalls. <laughs> Overalls, yeah. Um, so that's Sapiens. Awesome. All right, Chelsea, what you got? All right. So I was like Jake and I took some time off um, from reading and now that I'm back into reading I'm trying to diversify the books that I read but I always just lean towards thrillers so the one that I'm currently reading is called Sometimes I Lie and it is by Alice Feeney and it's about a woman who's in a coma and she can hear everything um, but she doesn't know how she got there so it's just kind of her like hearing her husband come into the room and saying very um, you know odd things that makes her think oh is he the one that made me go into a coma so it's just <laughs> um, that's your tone of voice makes it sound like it's wishful thinking like maybe he's the one <laughs> that knocked me unconscious into the state that i'll be in for you know eternity perhaps yeah it's really light-hearted like that yeah. so no <laughs> um so that's the first one that um is that i'm currently reading and then the next one that i have on deck that's kind of pushing me outside of my comfort zone is called the red tent mm -hmm. um i'm usually not into historical fiction um and that's what this book is about so it kind of looks at um the bible and the book of genesis and it's usually like when you read that it's through the lens of the men and this one looks at it through the lens of women um, and kind of just like what was going on with the women um, during that time and giving them more of a voice. So I just thought that this, or I've heard a lot of people who have read this book that really enjoyed it. Um, and so I am trying something new. Cool, how about I'll share a couple of mine and then we'll come back to you guys with, um, I think you have a couple more, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, mine are, a, perhaps unsurprisingly, a little bit more nerdy. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'm working right now on Winner's Take All, um, the, the elite charade of changing the world, uh, which is about um, this idea of win-win. Uh, so win-win as in like, hey, I can make a bunch of money and I'm making the world a better place um, and the fallacy of that concept. Mm -hmm. um, the author, I'm going to butcher his name, so I apologize in advance, uh, Anand Jiraharadis. Um, I'm halfway through. I'm really enjoying it. I think it's really applicable to what we do here in terms of um, the role of philanthropy and um, applying genuine measures to actually improving people's lives versus putting a veneer um, over something. 
Um, so uh, something that's on my book stand that I haven't actually cracked yet, but I'm going to. I've purchased it. It's looking at me. Falter has the human game begun to play itself out by Bill McKibbins, um, very noted climate activist and author. Um, I believe this book is about both climate change as well as other human activity that's troubling for the future of the species, including things like genetic engineering that's already taking place um, in China and uh, perhaps elsewhere. Um, and uh, I'm told that it's not just doom and gloom, but that McKibbins goes into how we can uh, turn a corner here. I hope we can because it sounds pretty ominous. Uh, the third one I've got uh, is The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting uh, Up a Generation for Failure. This has been out for a little while. I've, I've uh, gotten through the first couple of chapters. Sometimes I like, you know, pick up a book, make some progress, put it down, pick up another one, and so I'm in, in that process with this one. Um, so this is about the um, issue, especially on college campuses, of uh, people being um, triggered or feeling threatened by speech that uh, does not comport with their beliefs or values, um, and how uh, they, the authors argue that um, it is um, eroding um, American society. Um, so uh, I wanted to kind of, you know, challenge myself, frankly, uh, uh, to, you know, uh, hear a point of view that I might not necessarily agree with. And so far, I would actually say that I. I have agreed with the majority of what I've, I've, I've read. Um, so I'm only a couple chapters in, but I so far I would, I would recommend it. And then finally, I rarely read fiction, but as you guys know, I'm going to spend some time in Japan this summer. So I was looking for – actually, this isn't even fiction. This is nonfiction. <laughs> <laughs> this is nonfiction, but, like, it's not – nerdy. Non-nerdy non nonfiction. Um, so there's this book uh, called Storm on Our Shores, One Island, Two Soldiers, and the Forgotten Battle of World War II. Um, it is um, a story about the Battle of Atu, which is this remote island um, off uh, uh, Alaska, that uh, this horrific battle, and uh, I think historically somewhat pointless battle, strategically, if you get into the, uh, into the record about it, took place, but um, an American soldier picks up the diary of a medic that he kills in the war and eventually um, traces his life story and a path back to uh, his daughter, uh, that is the Japanese man's daughter, uh, who he eventually reconnects with. Uh, so yeah, I, th I thought it would be a good change of, change of pace and um, applicable to my own little life story as I'm gonna be in Japan for a while this summer. What else you got? Okay, my next one is a Beto O'Rourke pick. For, for those who might know, Beto O'Rourke is obsessed with Joseph Campbell, um, but this is not Joseph Campbell's most, most famous work, such as The Power of Myth or A Hero's Journey. Joseph Campbell usually writes about myth and stories and religion and how they impact our lives and how we view other people. So this pick actually kind of goes in line with what Chelsea was talking about earlier with the Red Tent. This is kind of a less famous work of his, but it's called Goddesses, Mysteries of the Feminine Divine, and it's his analysis of world religions, treatment of women, 
and how that's influenced our views of women today. Um, so I'm excited to read that one because I've read two of his other ones, but they're much more focused on men. Um, and similarly, my last one is For the Love of Men by Liz Plank. She's a writer at Vox, and this is a book about toxic masculinity, um, which we've probably heard a lot about in the news. But something I thought was interesting about this one is a lot of books about toxic masculinity are written by men, which I think is really, which is, very, <laughs> which is very important. I think it's really good to have male role models. But if there's like one thing things. that you could mansplain, wouldn't it be toxic? No, but here's, here's oh, okay. what I think is important. I think it's important to talk about toxic masculinity as someone who's impacted by it. Women yeah, are much I, more I impacted agree. than men are. Um, <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> so I've read a lot of books about masculinity by men, so I'm excited to read one by a woman. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> All right. For you lighthearted listeners, we've got Chelsea back. <laughs> um, so the last book that I want to, um, to read this summer, or I guess there's a lot, but this is just the next one on deck. It is called Fruit of the Drunken Tree. Um, and it is by, and I might get her name um, wrong, but Ingrid Rojas Contreras. Um, and it is about um, the 1990s in Colombia during like Pablo Escobar and like the height of his time. Um, and a young girl who lives in a gated community and she's kind of seeing um, from the inside of her gated community what's happening outside in Colombia during, um, you know, the height of like drugs and How is this that. lighthearted? I, well, it's like still fiction, I guess. So yeah, I mean, like... this is like narcos, <laughs> but more realistic or in, from a child's it's point of view true but she <laughs> it's not uh, someone in a coma yeah yeah it's not somebody in a coma i mean that i know of yet so um but she they her mom hires a maid and her and this maid kind of um form this bond and we get to see how that bond um transpires throughout the book so i guess yeah not light-hearted but it's fiction and that's mm -hmm. why i don't know it feels less scary all right maybe i don't those know those all sound good Thank you. Thank Especially you. in light of, um, I'm going to bring it back to nerd town now. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I visited Columbia a couple of years ago. It was a wonderful place. And now, unfortunately, mm -hmm. the violence th uh, that uh, ravages the country in the last decade is starting to creep back. So oh, no. I've taken a renewed interest in Columbia. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, then this might be a very timely book. Yeah, um, I, might, I might pick so, it up. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for sharing these ideas. Hopefully, people find them useful. And uh, now you have to actually read all of this stuff, mm -hmm. or else you'll just be... Or failures. Yeah. 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 The next episode will be our book report on them. Yeah, I expect <laughs> it. Handwritten, online paper. Done. <laughs> all right, thanks. Hey, it's Emma and Chelsea. Here's a section of one of our favorite episodes this season, an interview with the author of Unsavory Truth, how food companies skew the science of what we eat. Marian Nessel. Unsavory Truth reveals how the food industry manipulates nutrition science, from Coca-Cola-backed studies to blueberry-sponsored investigators, and suggests what we can do about it. So the full title of your book is Unsavory Truth, How Food Companies Skew the Science of What We Eat. And as you cover in the book, um, one of the main avenues that, uh, that they use to skew the science is through the funding of studies um, that cover the products that they sell. Um, could you provide some examples of how food companies fund research to influence the results, especially for those who aren't familiar with this area? Of work? Well, it's a, 
it's a complicated story, and the um, most of what we know about the effects of, fund, of food industry funding on research come from studies of the tobacco, chemical, and pharmaceutical drug industries. And I spend um, a chapter in the book sort of reviewing the literature on uh, drug company research. And what that research shows is that studies funded by drug companies generally come out with results that favor the drug company's specific brand name drug over generics that may be cheaper or even more effective. The the way the influence is exerted is invisible, and it's invisible because the recipients of the funding don't recognize that they're being influenced. They didn't intend to be influenced, um, and they deny that they were influenced. So it's unconscious, unintentional, and unrecognized. And then most of the influence occurs in the way that the research question is asked. There's a big difference between asking for research. We will, I get letters all the time, for example, from trade associations from various foods saying we're looking for research proposals to demonstrate the benefits of our products for health. Sometimes they're very specific about what kind of health benefits they're looking for. That's a very different question than saying we're interested in finding out the effect of our product on health. That may seem like a subtle distinction, but it will greatly influence the way the research question is designed and the way and the way the study is designed. It's very, very easy to design research to give you an answer that you want um, because you have a lot of choices to make about how you design the study, how long you run it, um, what kind of subjects you have in your trial what your control groups are, what the control diets are, how you measure these things, all of those are things that consciously or unconsciously you can skew in order to get the answer you want. Um, and, and so that's what you get from the uh, from the drug industry studies. And we had a really great example recently, which was a study funded by the alcohol industry, big alcohol, if you like. Five companies got together and gave the National Institutes of Health $67 million to do a long-term controlled clinical trial on um, the effects of one drink of alcohol a day on heart disease risk. And a reporter from the New York Times wrote about it, and after her story came out, she got a confidential tip from somebody at NIH saying that that study was not as neutral as it appeared to be. And she investigated and used Freedom of Information Act to get emails and, in fact, was able to demonstrate that investigators at NIH had solicited the money from the alcohol industry and had essentially promised them that the study would come out exactly the way the the industry wanted it, which was wow. to demonstrate that one drink a day would um, reduce the risk for heart disease. They were not going to run the, the study long enough to demonstrate that alcohol increases the risk for breast cancer in women, which it does. 
Um, and there were other manipulations in the study design that would keep uh, that that would balance things in such a way that the balance would favor a reduction in heart disease risk. Um, and this was when this was revealed by the New York Times. NIH was, as you might expect, horrified. Um, I guess the the top management didn't know anything about it. They immediately started an investigation. They stopped recruitment into the trial. When the investigation came out, it was absolutely scathing about the way the NIH investigators had behaved, and the trial was stopped. Yeah, you know, when, I'm, when I was reading your book and, you know, finding out more about the behind-the-scenes mechanics of how this was all done, um, I was thinking about the the example that you just shared, as well as the example of, for example, chocolates. Um, I, I feel like every other year there's, you hear some story about how chocolate's actually good for you and it's okay to eat at least a small amount of chocolate. And it seems to me that um, when these stories get out, you know, if a drink a day helps your heart health, dark chocolate is actually good for you, um, it, it feels like it's even better advertising than regular advertising, and probably at a fraction of the cost. Oh, every time I give a talk, I ask the audience, how many of you think that dark chocolate is going to reduce your risk for heart disease? And every hand in the audience goes up. That word is out. And that, you know, I give Mars a lot of credit for that because Mars invested millions of dollars in research to demonstrate that the flavanols in chocolate reduce the risk for heart disease, never mind that the flavanols are destroyed in the production of chocolate and that you would have to eat pounds of it a day for it to do any good. Um, and in fact, Mars now says we're not trying to advertise chocolate as a health food. We're not even claiming that chocolate is healthy. Um, we're now selling flavanol supplements and doing research on flavanol supplements. But by that time, the word was well out, and everybody believes that dark, bitter chocolate is good for you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether it is or not is questionable. It's candy, for heaven's sakes. And candy is candy, but the candy industry has a huge problem. People don't eat enough candy. They want people to eat more. That's their job. You know, I'm fond of saying that food companies are not social service agencies. They're businesses with stockholders to please. Their job is to sell more, not less. And public health is really not relevant to what they're doing. Um, so candy companies have funded research for a long time. I quote research. Um, that uh, is sponsored by the Confectionery Association, um, and that those those studies demonstrate that children who eat candy are healthier than children who don't eat candy and have less obesity and less the signs of type two diabetes and so forth. Um, you know, I, as I said, it's easy to design studies to give you answers like this. It depends on what your controls are. Back again, this is a highlight from another thought-provoking episode this season, an interview with Edward Villanueva, author of Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance. This book analyzes the post-colonial dynamics at play in philanthropy. Surprisingly to many, the field of philanthropy mirrors the harrowing history of colonialism much more than we would like to imagine. 
And you know how much we here at Wooden Teeth love breaking down myths. So listen along. In this book, you not only, of course, diagnose the problem, but you also prescribe some solutions. And in doing so, you use this phrase called, uh, you use this phrase, money as medicine. Can you share what you mean by that? Absolutely. So historically, at least in my community and in my life, uh, money has often had a negative connotation. And I think that's because many of us have not had it. And we think that, um, you know, maybe folks who have money um, might be using it for the bad or they got that money, you know, knowing that that money has been acquired in, in ways that have been harmful to communities. Um, but the case I'm making in the book is that money can actually be neutral or that money is neutral, that it's just a proxy for, um, you know, relationships and, and transactions and something that we use in this complex society in order to sort of buy and sell. And that it's not that money that is evil, it is actually the love of money when we elevate and, uh, you know, love money more than we do relationships or people or the land, and we're willing to sort of exploit all of the above for the sake of, um, you know, accumulating more money. And so if money is actually neutral, then we can flip the way that money has been used and use it for the good. And so using money as medicine means that we're using money in a way that's helping to restore balance. Uh, to help heal, to facilitate relationships and connectivity, and also in a way that actually responds to the hurt and the pain and the harm that the accumulation of wealth has historically caused. And so this is why in the indigenous culture, we can um, sort of uh, acknowledge something being medicine in our lives if it is something that um, sort of helps us feel whole, um, brings and restores balance to a situation or to our lives. It's sort of a, a sacred, um, you know, a, a sacred title that we can put on anything, um, a, a place, a person, an animal, um, a stone, a cup of coffee, anything that really brings that, that inner peace to us is medicine. And so, therefore, um, I think that money can be used as medicine in a sacred way if we are, again, using it to help repair and, and bring balance to the world. And how is money being used incorrectly now in philanthropy, in some cases at least? So in, in a couple of different ways. One, I think that sort of elements of white supremacy or the colonizer virus that we talked about before shows up really intensely when you look at the uh, who has the power to actually make decisions um, about how money is used, how it's invested, when you look at how money has been accumulated, all of that history, there's a lot of a lot of harmful things that you can uh, basically conclude from that. We have we have a diversity problem. We have um, a, a challenge around sharing power in this field. And then ultimately, when you look at how uh, where resources are being invested, we're grossly underinvesting in communities of color and philanthropy. And so, and just to break that down to some quick numbers. Foundations are sitting on $800 billion in assets, $800 billion with a B, um, and they're only um, investing about 5% of that, those resources in the community because that's what Congress forces private foundations to do. So only a minimum amount of this money that has been sheltered um, from taxation um, is, is warehoused, um, and only a minimum amount of that is actually going into communities. 
And of that small percentage, only seven to eight percent of that is invested in communities of color. And so we're really, uh, I think that's really unjust that one, uh, money that is intended for public good is mostly tied up in Wall Street and not actually benefiting the public, 95% of that money. And then two, the 5% that we are moving out of foundations into the community, only a small, small percentage of that is actually benefiting communities of color who have played a significant role in helping to accumulate wealth in this country. Yeah, it strikes me that the way philanthropy functions in the United States is relatively unique compared to other countries, especially other advanced countries. You know, in, in Europe, for example, they, of course, have a, they have a philanthropic sector, but most of the resources that are spent from that sector are focused on other countries, other less fortunate countries, um, primarily because the tax system in those countries is the primary means of making sure that the folks in those countries have what they need to succeed and, and be healthy. So here, is, is the mere existence of our philanthropic sector as it's currently operated inhibiting our country's ability to build a better society? I would say in general, yes. Um, on one hand, philanthropy has played a role in this country um, in many ways in pushing us along, um, helping us evolve and progress as a nation. You know, philanthropy has funded breakthroughs in science and has supported movements in this country, like the civil rights movement. However, um, I think that we, you bring up a really good point that philanthropy as it exists in this country is, is very unique. And there's a lot of money. This money would have gone into the public system to pay for public education, health care, elder care, um, you know, the infrastructure in our communities. But however, because we have this sort of a, a tax system that allows for wealthy corporations, wealthy families and individuals to actually not pay taxes, but to put that money into foundations, I think we're actually doing um, a little bit of a disservice um, to, uh, to our communities because we all know in state budgets and public health budgets and, and public education, uh, we are so starved for resources. And so I think that there's this, you know, there's the um, veneer of charity. We, you know, we hear about good things that foundations are doing, but we don't know as a general public for the most part that the, the bulk of these resources are tied up in investments on Wall Street with the intention of making foundations richer. And so I think that we have to ask ourselves, you know, what is really the net value of philanthropy if with one hand, with the 5%, we're doing a little bit of good, but we have 95% in our right hand of actually investing um, in, um, you know, industries that are extractive and potentially harming us. Yeah, I've, I've worked in philanthropy. Um, I've been on the other side and, you know, been the, the receiver of funding for which I've had to, of course, ask and, you know, philanthropy is not a monolith. There's a lot of different people, and I, I don't think that in all cases I'd say that the folks I've met in philanthropy certainly aren't evil. Um, but, you know, I, I have detected in some conversations that I've had, especially in the health world, um, with funders who kind of betray a bias, whether it's known or unknown to them, or even if it's real, I don't know, but 
the bias is that they don't seem to have any interest in any sort of radical change that changes the system at its root, say, via public policy, and may in some ways um, want to maintain the current deficiencies in the system because it helps justify their own existence. Here's our final highlight from this season, an interview with Leslie Crutchfield about her book, How Change Happens, Why Some Social Movements Succeed and Others Don't, a book about the factors that drive successful social and environmental movements and what the reasons are that others falter. So you've written a few books, and I want to jump right in by talking about your latest one, How Change Happens. In it, you try to uh, discern the factors that cause some social movements to succeed while others fail. And I wanted to read something that you wrote in it in which you try to, quote, embrace the dissonance, unquote, of our age. And the excerpt that kind of struck me was the following. How could society simultaneously grow more gay, stockpile unprecedented caches of guns, quit smoking, stop drunk driving, and remove toxins from the air that destroy the ozone, only later to fail to cap carbon emissions in any meaningful way? That's a lot to make sense of. How do, you, how do we begin to make sense of the seeming conflicts in progress and regression in modern society today? Well, all of those changes, Jake, happened in our lifetimes. That's the, the first thing that I think is phenomenal to think about. Um, and it speaks to this larger point that, you know, sometimes progressives, liberals, Democrats, and the issues they care about advance, and sometimes conservatives, Tea Partiers, Trumpers get their way. Um, you know, since the turn of the 21st century, just on these two issues really illustrates this polarization. If you think about cigarettes and tobacco, you know, we've cut smoking rates to 15% nationally on average, under 6% for young people. So where, whereas cigarettes used to be everywhere, now they're, you know, out of fashion. And guns, which didn't used to be everywhere, now are openly carried in all but a few states. Um, and we have very lenient laws and policies related to our access and ownership of guns. Those two changes happened in the exact same time frame, right, uh, from opposite ends of the political spectrum. And it speaks to this larger issue that change is not really a partisan issue at the end of the day, meaning that no one political party or philosophy has a lock on what changes are going to happen. There has been a movement of some sort, at least, in this country since the beginning of the 20th century to provide every American with either health insurance or access to health care. And although a lot of progress has been made in recent years with the ACA, you can't really say that universal health care or access to it has been achieved. Why do you think that is? Well, it really has been in the last few years that you've seen any significant progress on this healthcare for all movement. Um, and the reason why, if you look at how the ACA passed, you have to look at not just the policy 
and the negotiations and compromises that were made at the level of Congress uh, and the national or federal perspective. But you've got to look at the grassroots. And one thing that changed in our lifetime since the turn of the 21st century is that you saw actors in the healthcare right movement organize. Um, there was a broad coalition that came together, the HCAN or Healthcare for America Now Coalition. This had more than a thousand groups representing organizations and coalitions that had more than 30 million members. Those boots on the ground organized through these grass tops organizations were coordinating their actions and their advocacy, their demonstrations and their positive policy solutions in ways that really brought the power of that grassroots activism to bear on the policy changes that resulted in what we now call, call Obamacare. And I think it's very interesting to focus on the importance of that grassroots effort because when you look at the passage of the ACA and then you look over the last couple of years since the change in administration with the election of President Trump, for the first two years of his administration, you had Republicans leading in Congress and the Senate. They repeatedly tried to repeal and replace Obamacare, but they failed by a very close vote, I would add. But why every time those congressional members went back to their home districts, thousands of angry voters were demonstrating loudly to say, please don't take away affordable care for all. And that those demonstrations didn't just happen by chance. That was years and years of organizing, activism, uh, and funding that flowed to state and local coalitions, um, both able to pass the bill and then protect it later. And when you look at other changes that have happened, whether for better or for worse, depending on where you sit, you know, let's take the next big congressional uh, act under Trump, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, that passed very easily through the bicameral-led Republican House and Senate. Why? Because thousands of concerned citizens were not turning out in town halls and congressional districts demanding that their tax laws not be changed in that way. It's the one thing that can really explain why certain changes have happened and why others, whether you're looking at gun rights expansion or tobacco control, the expansion of affordable health care, and so many of the other changes that we could talk about. Well, I hope we provided some good leads for your summer reads. And remember that you can provide us with feedback anytime via our website, woodenteethshow.com. Have a great one. I'll see you later.